today's a very special day, and we are privileged uh, to have uh, Paul Young with us, uh, author of The Shack. His movie, the movie about his book, is coming out on March the 3rd, as I announced a little bit ago. And uh, so what an honor and a privilege for us to have him in a very busy season, right? Uh, coming straight, I picked him up last night from L.A., right? And doing interviews all day in L.A. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Young, will you? Yeah. I get that one. Your boss told me. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. All right, sit down. Thank you. Uh, Yes. Straight straight from L.A. yesterday. Actually, we were watching your uh, Facebook Live thing. Tim McGraw and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's people I hang out with all the time. Yes. (laughs) How weird is that? Right? (laughs) I'm sitting there with Octavia and Tim and Rada Mitchell, and we're talking about the impact of the movie. Um, we were in what's... Uh, I learned what a junket is. It's this media thing where you sit in one room and they bring one interviewer after another, and I did over 60 interviews in one day. Yeah. On, that was on... Uh, what day is it? Sunday? That was, on, <laughs> <laughs> that was on Friday, and then yesterday we had all these roundtables where... You'd move from different rooms, and there'd be like eight um, uh, journalists, um, and you're being recorded and filmed the whole time. It was wild and crazy. Wow. So, and, and because I don't know what I'm doing, I had a blast. It was like, <laughs> I've never hugged so many people in my whole life. It was like, <laughs> and, and the common thing that they would say is, because I, I like to hug, because I think the world needs as many hugs as it can get, and... And they'd, they'd walk in and they'd go like, their, their common response was, oh. And then, you know what? I think everybody at the core of their being is a hugger. I think they were as a child and then somewhere along the line they forgot about it. And it's like, oh. And it just changed the dynamics. It was fantastic. So you're in there hugging everybody. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Oh, and they'd go like, oh, you're a hugger. Thank God, you know. <laughs> Can you teach some of the other people we interview? You know, so that's so great. That's awesome. So uh, the the movie's coming out. You got to see it. Uh huh. Fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. Wow. It's probably one of the best book to screen adaptations I've ever seen. Were you nervous about it? I mean, it's your it's your baby. No, you weren't. No, no. Um, I wasn't. Uh, And for those of you who don't know. I never intended to be a published author. You know, I was trying to do like the Bible says and submit to my wife and, and, uh, <laughs> what? It's, it says that. She told me it says that. <laughs> actually, actually, it does say that. It says, it says, listen, submit one to another and she's one of the others. Okay. So she had been saying for about four years, because, you know, I've written stuff all my life um, just as gifts for friends and family. So she had said, um, someday as a gift for our kids, would you just write something? Put in one place how you think as a, as a gift because you think outside the box. We have six kids. Our youngest at that time was 13, uh, is now 23. And, um, and so on the train to one of my three jobs, I wrote a story for Christmas and uh, made 15 copies at Office Depot, and those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Mm. So 
Um, so for all of this to happen, totally God's sense of humor. <laughs> so do you remember the Old Testament? Do you remember uh, Balaam's ass? It's proof that God can still speak through Balaam's ass. All right. All right. Uh, so... The, first, the movie is fantastic. You, and, and so the first time, Paul, we were talking about this quickly last night, I heard you speak was, I was out in San Diego. Yeah, at a pastor's, pastor's conference. Yeah, that was a while ago. It was not long. 08, after the book. I think. 08, yeah. right? Not long after the book came out. Right. And um, you told a little bit of that story. Um, but I thought the interesting thing was you were, you were talking about how you sold them out of your garage for a season, uh-huh. right? And a, and a friend or out of the back of the car, <laughs> or the back of the car. <laughs> <laughs> but you got a call one day from um, what was it? The uh, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't get it. Um, what happened was is that when my friends start giving the book away, that's it ended up in the hands of three guys in California who, right from the very beginning, wanted to make it into a movie, and um, so we started this. We started working toward actually putting it into print because the one statistic that they told me was that if you can sell 100,000 copies of a novel, Hollywood will come talk to you about a book, I mean, about a movie, because 65% of all successful movies are book adaptations, and they love a book that's done really well. And, um, um, but what I didn't know at the time was that the average book only sells three to 5,000 copies its entire existence. And uh, less than 4% of all books, and that includes Bibles and textbooks and manuals and computer stuff, ever makes it to 100,000. That's like wow. super rarefied air. In fact, if you can write a novel and sell 7,500 copies, you can put bestseller on it. Wow. Huh? Isn't that amazing? I didn't wow. know that. So I'm figuring like, oh, so we're going to work toward 100,000. Like there's more people than that in Portland, Oregon, you know? And uh, how hard can this be? <laughs> that's, how, that's how naive I was. So, um, so we, we got it ready. We sent it to 26 publishers. All 26 turned it down. Wow. Um, the Christian publishers thought it was too edgy, and the secular thought it was too much Jesus. So That's where I the, live. You know, that's yeah. where a lot of them... Yeah. That's yeah. where I live, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know... Two of the three guys uh, created a publishing company. One of them volunteered to ship books out of his house at night because he's putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. I'm working, my th- I'm working my three jobs, and our big goal was, well, maybe in two years we could get up to 10,000 copies because that's what our first order was. I had a friend who loaned me some money, and one of the guys had savings, and the other one had a Visa and a MasterCard. And so <laughs> that's true. It's true. And... Uh, and so we order 10,000 copies from a local printer. It gets drop shipped May of 2007. I go back to work because I'm working three jobs. And, um, and uh, we were hoping like 10,000 in two years and 100,000 maybe in five years, and then Hollywood will come talk to them about a movie. <laughs> so, so it was a big surprise three and a half months later when I get a call, we need to order more books. And I'm thinking... Are we just giving them all away? What are we doing? Because <laughs> meanwhile, I've been told that 10,000 copies? Are you crazy? That's 8,000 in your garage after two years when you've run out of friends and family. And uh, 
And so, yeah, so we said, no, people are coming to our little website because we had no marketing and no promotion. And, um, and they're buying one, and then they'll come back and buy five, and then they'll come back and buy cases. I'm going, really? So we ordered 22,000, and we went through, well, actually, we ordered 20,000. They kept giving us this 10% by accident extra that they charge us for. So we ordered. <laughs> it's, there's a word for it. I mean, an, an actual word. <laughs> it's called overage. Yeah. And so when we ordered 10,000, we got 11,000. When we ordered 20,000, well, we went through 22,000 books in 60 days, and then we went through 33,000 books in 30 days. Barnes & Noble calls us up and says, we're really excited about your little book, because by this time, people were showing up at the store asking for it, and they couldn't find it, because like, we weren't in anybody's system, right? Mm. And uh, so Amazon couldn't find it, so they were tracking us backwards, and uh, ending up at our massive the guy that was shipping him out at night because he's putting in people's sprinkler systems, you know. And uh, that was Brad. And, and they said, we're really excited about your little book. Would you just uh, send us your marketing promotion plan so we can get on board? Uh -huh. Like, could you send us one of yours that we could cut and paste? <laughs> That's actually what Brad told them. And they laughed and hung up. And uh, about two weeks later... Uh, the guy calls from Barnes & Noble, he says, look, normally we charge a lot of money for people to put their books, publishers, to put their books at the front of our stores nationwide. It's called placement. Would you consider allowing us to do that for you for three months for free? Well, let me pray and fast about that one, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they did. And, and at that point, it just took off like a rocket in the first 13 months from, um, from May of 07 through June of 08, because at the end of June, 1st of uh, July in 08, the two guys, uh, Brad and Wayne, who own the publishing company, entered a joint venture with Hachette, who's a large publisher out of uh, France and New York, and they took the book internationally. But uh, in those 13 months, um, we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies of the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, we're brilliant. I mean, it was all a God thing right from the very beginning. So, you know, so it wasn't hard to let this go because I had no expectations to begin with. And when you learn to live without expectations, everything becomes a gift. Wow. So. That's a huge perspective, by the way, right? Just, yeah. I mean, honestly, because yeah. I think that's the first thing we'd think of is, I got to control this. I didn't control the first one, so, you know, why control the, the movie? Why stress yeah. about it? Let me give you another perspective that I think will help on this, and I think this will help in our lives, too. I'm, I'm a missionary kid, modern evangelical fundamentalist background, right? Preacher's kid. And um, I, I used to know what God was up to, and I used to tell everybody. You know, uh, you've met some of my people. So, um, but I don't do that anymore. Uh, I, I have a general sense of what God's purposes are, and they always involve human beings. God doesn't need another book or another movie. Those things don't give you identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, or love. You know, it. The book has given us an, an, an invitation into the holy ground of other people's stories, which is 
I'll always and forever be grateful. But I don't, I, I don't know what the specific purposes of God are. And when, when I laid the movie down, is what I did early on. No creative control, no rights. And, um, and it was a brilliant um, nudge of the Holy Spirit, which I have absolutely no regrets about and never have. And when I did that, um, people would say, well, what if they really make a bad movie out of this? And I'd say, well, I don't know what the purposes of God are. So if the purposes of God are better served by a crappy movie, I'm in, right? Because I want to be a participate, to participate in what God's actually doing. And the beautiful thing, too, about this is that this is not a crappy movie. This is like top-tier, stunning. I mean, take tissues because uh, there's nobody that comes out of this disappointed about the movie, uh, but also not deeply touched in very, very many different ways. And I'm, I'm thrilled to just be in the middle of the mix, just like I have been the whole time. Didn't know it was going to actually be a real book, you know? <laughs> so how cool is this? Wow. How many people here have read The Shack? It's no, one, no one's been offended wow. if you haven't. Okay. Wow. So, Thank you. And how many is, uh, it's church, why not confess? I haven't read it. It's, Which one? Two of you haven't read it. All right. So, I, no, I'm just curious. Some people haven't read it yet. Okay. Wow. Great. Great. How uh, fun how, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was talking to a guy last night. He, he goes, was with Jeff and Michelle. We were uh, sitting in, the guy at the restaurant goes, what are you guys doing here? Because they're from Pittsburgh. What are you doing in town? Is there a special event? And I thought, how do I explain it? And I, so I said something about, you know, you and the shack. He thought I was talking about Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, that's that very common. Uh, <laughs> no, this is about so, a little white guy. <laughs> <laughs> Few more, few more people to reach, I guess. Uh, but my copy says, I mean, this was early, so it says over two million. Now it's I mean, twenty-two million. Two million. Yeah. It's it's a phenomenon. It is a phenomenon. It is uh, and, God's great sense of humor. Yep. And it, but it deeply touched people's hearts. It I, did. And talk about that, Paul. So it's the heart. It connect to the heart. Uh, Issues of the yeah. heart. And I think part of that that is because the book is so human. It's a, it's a celebration both for the lost side and the love side of our humanity. And what it did, it gave people a language to have a conversation about God that wasn't religious. You know, yeah. it was relationship. Yeah. And you bring up questions that people really have. And they yeah. don't feel... I mean, yeah. the, I can say at this church, we say time and time again, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to, have, it's okay to be mad. It's, it's okay, you know, but people thought, no, I still can't. Yeah. But you bring them all out. I mean... And, and that's the, you know, I'm writing this for my kids. I'm not thinking the whole world's going to read it. So, you know, there's no reason for me to be kind of uh, covering up and being a facade. It's like my kids, they know me. And I'm saying, like, I want you to meet the God who actually showed up and healed my heart, not the God I grew up with. And that's what I remember you saying. You said yeah. the shack this weekend. So if you haven't read it yet and you're, you're, you're in for a treat, but it's a weekend at a shack where... The, the main character meets God. Right, but it's inside his own place of lostness and where he got stuck. And the metaphor on one level is it's the house on the inside that people helped us build. And a, and a lot of us, we didn't get good help. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes this broken down place we never want to go back into. We don't ever want another person to find out about it. We store our addictions there. We hide our secrets there. 
and we build a facade somewhere outside that we can paint as fast as we can pick up people's expectations. So this is about going back in and finding out that God has, has been there the whole time and uh, that we are just not powerful enough to separate ourselves from that relentless affection. Paul, your personal, you said this was a, I think you said before, seven years? Eleven. Eleven years. That journey. weekend represents eleven years of deconstruction and reconstruction. In your life. Yep. And reorienting your concept of God. Absolutely. Your, your original concept of God was? Gandalf with a bad attitude. Gandalf with a bad attitude. <laughs> you know, that bearded white Zeus guy, and, and to even be a little more pointed... Jesus, um, we, could, we could manage quite well because he was so human and he was so good. And yes, he was in your face about stuff, but you always had this sense that Jesus loved you. Now, God the Father, not so much. And so it was like they were two different personalities. And you had God the Father as the darkness behind Jesus, the one that needed to be appeased, the retributive, punitive judge, and... In all of this, even though Jesus comes and says, you want to know who the Father is? You just watch me. We forgot about that part. You know, we already have our mythology, and a lot of times we've taken our own pain and plastered it on the face of, of God the Father. And, and Jesus came to violate that set of lies that we believed. But sometimes, you know, our lies have become more comfortable for us than the idea that there is freedom in relationship, because freedom is, and relationship are both mysteries and scary. And uh, we want the certainty of something. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so Jesus, and in, in the way I grew up, Jesus came to save me from God the Father. That's how you grew up. That's how I grew up. They and, were at odds, or they, yeah, well, God the Father's but, angry. And they even Jesus. told me that because I was such a piece of crap, because that was, I have a better word for that, but <laughs> piece of crap theology, right? You, that's all you are in the core of your being. The truth of your being is that you're really nothing. And we even sing these ridiculous songs about it, like, you are good, you are good, there is nothing good in me, right? Total lie. But we sing them. And, and it's a great way to get indoctrinated, but we sing songs like that. And, um, but it's like, you're nothing. So, so when Jesus shows up, he's going to cover you with his righteousness so that God the Father doesn't really find out about what a piece of crap you are. Do you understand? And, and when you start that way, you got nowhere to go. Everything is now cover-up. Their whole life is about cover-up. And that's because you believe the truth of your being is that you are nothing. You're worthless. And then for those of us who are broken, we just don't have the skills and the self-discipline to manage that brokenness. So, I mean, we give it our best shot because we, we've tasted something beautiful and good and we're drawn to it, but we don't have the energy to sustain it because at the core of our being, we still think we're just worthless and full of shame. And that's the truth of who we are. And at some point, we give up because we just can't, we can't do this. And religion is the one that told us that you're really worthless. And now it's about you need to perform your way into the affection and the approval of God. Well, good luck with that. If the truth of my being is that I'm broken and I'm just nothing and I'm a piece of garbage, my way of being, the way I live my life ultimately will match 
what I believe about the truth of my being. And the beauty of Jesus is Jesus comes to violate the lie that we're garbage. Do you think that God would become anything that is not the best? And God becomes fully human? What does that say about our humanity? It says that God has a very high view of humanity, not a low one. And once we begin to see the truth of our being, the way of our being will match it. How many people here grew up with what Paul grew up with? You are nothing, you're, you're dirt, you're, you're not maybe dirt, but yeah. you're, you're a sinner to the core. You are, saved how many by people grace. grew up that way? Just throw your hands up. Yeah, sinner okay. saved by grace. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Right. The, the kind of the defining thing is sinner. And right. Yeah. Right. By the way, we're over there singing songs, and it's, it's so important because you, you made such a great comment. It's so hard. You know, I don't have time to write all the songs that the church is going to sing, but you, you wince at times. When songs are sung, and people don't mean them bad, but they just have, they've, they've been woven. Well, we bring into, to the table what we have, and, right. and including all the boxes. But it's so important, yeah. right? Because it reinforces a bad story that you are a bad, you are bad, and... Oh, it's a lie. Yeah. Yeah, and as a person, what, what a person thinks in their heart, that's how they will be, right? Mm-hmm. That's scripture. Yeah. As a, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. Yeah. yeah. To me, this book is loaded with unbelievable... If, if you took everything else out it's it's un, it's like a therapy session yeah so is the movie let me tell you you know what i mean it, yes it, it, it's just an unbelievable i mean you know having seen a counselor myself and no i, I have they, too yeah yep. and it's to me it's the technique of learning to, in your quote learning to live loved right he's struggling because yeah you're not living loved there there's two fundamental threads through the book um other than dealing with the fact that we all we all experience loss. And it, and it actually, the book affirms that our tears matter. Because our, our, we don't lament well and we don't grieve well. And, um, and at some point, we need to have a sense that our, our tears matter. But the through lines are, God is good all the time. And this journey is about learning how to trust. Those things are massive. Because a lot of us, we... We don't really think that God is good all the time or that is aware of my life or, that know, or who knows me and not only loves me but likes me and is for me all the time. And a lot of us who grow up with shame and damage and brokenness and abandonment and all the kinds of losses that we experience, abuse, trust is the big deal. You know, give me religion where you just tell me what I'm supposed to do, but don't ask me to trust anybody including invisible people, you know? And uh, so, so this is about the journey of trust. And that is risky and scary. And, um, and a, a lot of us take community in order for us to begin to make those steps into trust. And it becomes the through line in the book. Yeah, I'm, I was rereading this morning, and, you know, you're talking about how, um, you know, we can gravitate to rules because it's it's a control and it's safe but relationship is risky right yeah so we talk about uh, having a relationship with god but when you really play that out i mean it it's unsettling for some yeah. people i want am i in am i out have i yep. checked certain boxes oh yeah propositional truth and that way i know i'm better than somebody right or that I, uh, i'm better than somebody you know <laughs> and uh and part of what i get criticized about is that they think god is too good that I'm presenting God as too good. And, and, and I get that because that's, that's the background I come from. I, 
I actually felt I was better than somebody, and there were people that I didn't want to make them make it. You know, so um, there is this judgmentalism that gets confronted in the middle of this in Mackenzie's life and the cave scene with Sophia. Sophia is the wisdom of God out of Proverbs, and uh, and you have this movement. Um, and like you're saying, First John says, to the degree that there is fear in your life, to the degree. To that degree, you don't know yet how much you're loved. That's First John. Perfect love casts out fear. The one who fears is not perfected in love, and there is no fear in love. Mm-hmm. Right? So all this fear stuff is stuff that we bring to the table. And to the degree that fear dominates our lives, to that degree, we don't know how much we're loved. And when you deal with fear, you've got one of two choices, control or trust. And let me tell you, we are control freaks. Right? I mean, you just... You have those moments where you think that the whole universe is right and, and you sense God's love and then something comes along and hits you sideways and you're freaking out again. And you're immediately trying to control everybody around you and the world around you so that the things that you're really afraid of don't happen. And, um, and that's where living in the grace of one day becomes this dominant through line, not just in the book, but in my own life. Right. You know, right. if, if, if I could teach young people, the millennials coming up and and the generations, um, one thing other than the goodness and trustworthiness of the nature and character of God, it would be learn to live inside the grace of only one day. Right? Right? One day. Only one. You're given grace that is sufficient for the day. That's it. You're not given today's grace to spend it on things that don't exist. I call that future tripping. (laughs) Right? How many of us spend all this energy and worry and fret and anxiety over things that don't exist. They're all future-tripping imaginations based in fear. I mean, I've been to my own funeral I don't know how many times, you know? (laughs) And I I was the only one who cried. (laughs) You didn't, you know? So, you, you understand, we have these... You know, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to end up in Portland. It's under Burnside Bridge, you know, as a homeless person. And I'm going to, and, you, and we build up these, I'm going to have this conversation with this person. They're going to get all upset. That's the end of that relationship. So I'm not even going to talk to them, right? I mean, we create future tripping imaginations, drag them into the present, and then try to control the universe. And because... We, because we're not present, we don't see what God is doing right in front of us. We don't see the person who is right in front of us. You know, we, we run past our children and our spouses and our friends because we're trying to get control over some imagination that doesn't exist. And Jesus is saying, take, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to have its issues of its own, but it'll also have the grace that you will get in the morning. I don't know if it's a Jewish thing and you get it like at six at night for the next day or... I'm, I'm not a Jew, so hey. Um, I get it first thing in the morning and I spend it all day long. Um, but when you're there in the presence, there's fullness of joy. And joy is not dependent on circumstance. And the verse that I draw you to is the one that says... Take captive, which means you have to participate in this. And this is part of the beauty of all of this. Your choices matter to the core. They matter to the entire cosmos. We have such a low view of humanity that we think we're just a pawn caught in some kind of cosmic game. But the truth of it is is God submits to your choices. This is a God who submits by nature. 
The whole truth of the cross is that God submits to our torture device in order to destroy its power, climbs into something we bring to the table. So your choices matter. Take captive every empty imagination that raises itself up against the knowing of God. And the knowing of God would be what? God is good all the time. God is a light, 1 John. And in God there is no darkness at all. Any darkness, we brought that to the table. We turned our face away from truth, which is light. And instead of being face to face, we cast a shadow that now becomes reality to us. And we spill that shadow not only on each other and ourselves, we spill it on the face of God. And part of what Jesus comes to do in the Holy Spirit's work is to teach you how to agree with the truth, not only of who you are, but who God is, to the praise of his glory. Yeah. Paul, we were, last night, our church family were doing a series called Living in the Moment, right now. There you go. Being present. Yeah. Right here, right now. And you're... One of the lines in the book says, you know, an imagination is a powerful thing. I'm, I'm misquoting a little bit, but it, used poorly, it makes a terrible taskmaster, task right? Yep. Your imagination can take you to the wrong place, yep. right, in a hurry. So I love creative imagination as long as the intent of it is not to try to control the universe. You know, if it's fear-based, it's destructive. If it's... If it's so part, you're imagining part, something, yeah. the worst thing's going to happen, yeah, the wrong yeah. thing's going to happen. If it's participatory... Like I'm participating and co-creating with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's incredible. That's where our music and our, our, our visual expressions of creativity come. And, and you know, nature is that. That's, that's God playing, mm. right? Mm. And, and that's the side of imagination that's really true and authentic and real. Mm. It's this fear-based stuff that just dominates our lives and then ends up dominating our relationships. Mm. And we hide. We hide everything in our hearts just because we don't, we don't want to lose a sense of control. Mm-hmm. Paul, uh, we shift to, you've been criticized. You, you, you threw that out I there. I have? I heard. Uh, My mom and... called me a heretic. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you. I wrote, I, said, I wrote that down. I, thought, well, I don't know where I read that, but your mom said you were a heretic. Yeah. Is that true? Yes. So, you wrote the book and your mom said you're a heretic. I know, mom. <laughs> you know, so I write this book and my mom starts hearing about it. My parents are both living. My, my mom's 89, my dad's 87. And, and my mom starts hearing about it from her hairdresser and her doctor. And so, oh, nothing like the hairdresser. I know. You got to read this book. It's written by this guy. And, you know, I think he was a Canadian, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's why I don't do Q. That's why I don't do Q and A because I'm a Canadian. Uh, I do questions and responses. If I was an American, I'd probably have all the answers. But, um. ouch! Oh. And if I really had, here. if I really had all the answers, I'd be in politics. So, uh, so, so Canadians do Q and A, but it's questions and apologies. Oh, I'm sorry. You know. Sorry. So my mom, hears, my mom hears about the book, and then she, she decides she's going to try to read it. You know? So, I mean, she gave it her best shot, you know. I mean, she, there's, she has four children, but nobody's written a book. And her firstborn son, you know, it's, yeah, I got to tell you that a few weeks ago, I'm with my mom, and she has this funny look on her face across the room. Uh, we're talking. And I go like, what? She goes... You're my son. Who would have thought? 
<laughs> yeah, thanks, Mom. <laughs> but she's right. I mean, because none of us thought. And um, but she, so she got she got to the place where Papa God comes through the door. And if you want a visual, think Octavia Spencer. Right? Papa God is a large black African American woman because I grew up with Gandalf with a bad attitude, and that God doesn't show up. You know. But this embracing, in-your-face, relentless affection does. And, um, but when Papa came through the door for the first time, my mom shut the book. And she, she picked up the phone, called my sister. Hey, Debbie, your brother is a heretic. Right? And, and she meant it. Right? Now, I don't know if we have time, but let me tell you, there is a story about how she got past that that is just a ripper of a story that just evidences how the grace of God is woven into the normal... I think we have time. time. Do we have time? We have time. Okay. All right. So let me tell you this story. You'll love this story. It's, it's, uh, It's one of those that God is good all the time involved in the details of our lives, but does it in such a way that is so dignifying and respectful that a lot of times we don't even see it. Well, most kind of time because we're running off into imaginations that don't exist, so we're not even present. And um, so in 1946, which is a while ago, my mother entered nurse's training as an 18-year-old um, single girl in Victoria Jubilee Hospital in Victoria, British Columbia. Three-year nurse's program. Three months later, uh, she gets her cap, which she said, I looked cooler, but I still didn't know anything. And... And she happens to be uh, doing a shift, you know, to learn one evening when a woman comes into the hospital and she's bleeding, pregnant and bleeding. And uh, they immediately call the head of OB and he rushes in, examines her and says, we're going to have to take the baby. Now here's the background. This woman's name is Mrs. Munn. She is married to Reverend Munn, who is the senior pastor of the Anglican Church. And her chart shows that she had had five late second trimester, early third trimester miscarriages in a row. So five times they could feel the baby kick and then lost the baby. So you can imagine what a devastation. I mean, it is. It's the loss of all the dreams and all the hopes and all the... I mean, you can feel this baby, right? And five times. And so they had had a conversation with their community. They had prayed about it and decided they would try one more time. And she comes into the hospital bleeding. Now, in 1946, you had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the doctors. It's still today, I know. Uh, neurosurgeons specifically. But, uh, but I had a friend who's a neurosurgeon. I'm always teasing him about it. And I think nurses exist to save us from doctors. So, uh, so that's why you'll find these nurses in my stories. That are, you know, my mom was an RN. My mother-in-law was an RN. One of my boys is married to an RN. And um, so uh, also back in 1946, there's no NICU, there's no neonatal, there's uh, little chicken incubators were the state of the art and uh, with a little heat lamp on them. And uh, so the doctor sets up an emergency C-section, grabs the, the night nurse to assist and a student nurse to assist to learn and to the, do the cleanup. My mom. So... Three months in a nurse's training, my mother is pulled into an emergency C-section in which the doctor delivers a one-pound baby boy. Now, that's about the size of a stick of butter. If you want another visual, 
Our third grandchild, and we have our tenth on the way, and they're all nine years old and under. <laughs> it's like, if, if your kids won't change your theology, your grandchildren surely will. And, uh, but um, when he was born, he was born four pounds and a half an ounce, and I have a picture of his entire fist like this with lots of room to spare inside my son's wedding band. Okay? So this little baby is born one pound, 16 ounces. And the doctor puts him in a kidney tray, hands him to my mother and says, it's not viable, dispose of it. Which means the incinerator. Because that's what you did with all medical waste. And he goes back to finish the, the procedure. And my, my mother's standing there stunned like the baby is still breathing. And she doesn't know what she's supposed to do. So she goes out to the service area and she's praying. She's saying, God, what do I do? Because you don't countermand her a doctor. You just don't do it. But she comes up with a plan, so she finds a washcloth. And if you know anything about preemies of that size, they don't make any noise. They're usually silent. And she wraps this little baby up in the washcloth, puts him back in the kidney tray, goes back in the operating room, and puts him up on top of the sterilization unit because it's the only warm place in the room. The doctor finishes and leaves. Uh, the head nurse takes Mrs. Munn to post-op for recovery, leaving my mother to do the cleanup, and that's what she does. And the baby was delivered 8.30 p.m. May the 30th, 1946. At 9.30, my mother's done with all the work, and she's sitting there in the operating room holding this little baby, waiting for him to die. That's the plan, right? Because she couldn't put a living, breathing baby in the incinerator, and so she's going to wait for him to die, because... One-pound babies don't survive in 1946. And so she's just holding him, waiting for him to die. At 9.30, the doctor meets with the parents and tells them the bad news. I'm, I'm so sorry. You have a son, but he wasn't viable. He did not survive. Then the doctor goes home, leaving the parents to grieve the loss of their sixth child. 10.30, my mother's holding the baby in the operating room, waiting for him to die. 11.30, 12.30. At 1.30 in the morning, she says to herself, well, I should probably tell somebody about this. Because yeah. <laughs> he's not dying. And so she calls the head nurse who assisted, and the head nurse says, boy, are we in so much trouble. But she has to call the doctor. The doctor comes rushing in from home, and he is livid, and he lights into this insubordinate, disobedient 18-year-old girl and just rips her apart says, you know what, you have now put me and the hospital in a situation and, and now, because you caused it, it's your responsibility. But don't you dare say anything to the parents. So code of silence is placed on this whole thing. My mother, she's looking at this little baby and says, what do I do? So she takes the baby up to the nursery and the nursery nurses adopt this baby start feeding it around, holding it around the clock, feeding with the eyedropper. And over the next two days, the baby loses four ounces, which is common. One, it's also common that little boys struggle more to, to survive. Girls are naturally stronger. And so, I mean, there was no way this baby was going to survive. And, and um, so they loses four ounces, drops to 12 ounces. And, but nobody has said a thing to the parents. They're grieving. And what is the doctor thinking? Well, the doctor's thinking the baby's going to die. And as soon as the baby dies, then code of silence, swept under the rug. Nobody has to be the wiser, you know, while the baby starts to pick up weight. 
and the doctor realizes he has got to say something to the parents before this really gets out of hand. So he meets with the parents and he says, we didn't want to give you any false hope. When your baby was delivered, he wasn't viable. And, but due to the miracles of modern medicine, we've managed to, <laughs> right? We've managed to sustain him. And, and, um, but we don't think he is going to survive, but you have a son. And, um, and I mean, they're like, do you think they care in that moment? They don't. And they name him Harold, the good news. Harold is good news. And, and that afternoon, Reverend Munn takes his little baby boy and baptizes him with an eyedropper, thinking that he's, he's going to die. So um, two weeks later, Mrs. Munn goes home. Two months later, little tiny Harold goes home to his parents in a, basically a shoebox. And two years later, my mother, along with all the other nurses that cared for him, get an invitation to his second birthday party. <coughs> it, gets, it gets better. So, meanwhile, the parents have been asking the doctor in the hospital, like, what really happened here? Like, almost three days, right? Nobody says anything to them. There's, they leaves them in this mystery. Well... They invite my mother because she's one of the nurses, and so she goes with a bunch of the nurses, and she says, we're sitting around trying to figure out which one of these little kids is Harold, and suddenly it's like, that's him. A little skinny, she says, but otherwise running around like totally normal because the doctor said you're going to have brain damage and it's, you know, all these complications. And uh, my mother says nothing. So she graduates that year. She moves to central Canada, Saskatchewan, where she goes to Bible school, meets my dad, get married, they get married, and they go to northern Alberta where I'm born, in Grand Prairie, up north of Edmonton. And then when I'm 10 months old, the three of us pack everything we have and we move to the highlands of New Guinea so that my parents can become pioneer missionaries um, in a tribal culture up in the highlands. We come back when I'm about 10 years old. My dad was an itinerant pastor, so we moved around a lot, 13 schools before I graduated high school. I'm 17, graduating high school in Terrace, B.C., which is up just south of the panhandle of Alaska. And my mother's working at the hospital. And this one day, she happens to read an Anglican newsletter. Now, if you understand, at, at that time, Protestant evangelicals, Anglicans were, like, not even quite Christians, you know. So, you know, <laughs> she was kind of, like, oh. violating the, the whole thing, you know, by reading this Anglican newsletter. But... <laughs> But in it had an obituary for a Bishop Munn who had passed away. And she happened to be working that day with an Anglican nurse. And she said, did you know by any chance Bishop Munn? And the nurse said, I know him really well. She said, uh, I worked with him with the tribal people, the First Nations people in, um, in both Alberta and British Columbia. Amazing man. My mother's still not sure. Did Bishop Munn have any, any children? Yes, one son. Harold. My mother says, do you know where he is? She says, no, I sort of lost track of him. You know, amazing, amazing kid. Graduated college when he was like 15, which Harold has told me isn't true. But, <laughs> but, uh, but says, uh, you know, last I heard he's a missionary teacher in West Africa. My mother still doesn't say anything for 10 more years. 10 years later, she reads another obituary. Guess who died? The doctor. 
I'm 27 years old, and it's the first time my mother tells even her husband this story. Because now the doctor is dead, and he's not coming back. (laughs) At least not right away. (laughs) And by then, things will have calmed down. So my mother decides to track down Harold because the doctor's dead. And she found him. He was now the senior pastor of the Anglican Church just blocks away from where his father pastored in 1946. And for six months, my mother stews about this thing. Like, because here's her issue. How do I tell Harold the truth about his birth without him thinking that I'm just looking for credit? And Christmas came, and she writes this beautiful letter and wraps up the birth of Harold inside the birth of Jesus, the coming of a son who would change the world. Wow, wow. And she sends it to him, and Harold immediately is on the phone saying, we need to talk. And so my parents meet Harold and his wife, and my mother tells Harold the truth of his birth. And he's blown away. Well, as you can imagine, my mother and Harold have become very, very close. And one day on the phone, my mother says to Harold, Hey, Harold, I have this son. (laughs) And he wrote this book. <laughs> and I'm having a problem with it. And, I, and Harold says, well, Bernice, would, would you let me... Why don't I read it and let you know what I think? Oh, would you do that? <laughs> and she says, I'm not even going to tell you what I'm going to have a problem with, which is really great on her part. She's just saying, I'm having an issue, and, and we, I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Right? He says, so... He reads the shack and he sends me an email. Hey, Paul, I read your book and I think I know what your mom's struggling with. It's the imagery that you use for God the Father. Let me see if I can do something about that. And Harold blind copies me on an email to my mom. Dear Bernice, I read Paul's book. You need to know that I love everything about this book, but I think I know what you're struggling with. It's how he images God the Father Let me tell you why that is so important to me. And Harold lays it out. In all orthodox theology, the Christian, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, everybody throughout the ages have agreed that all of maternity and all of paternity originate in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. That this is not about a God who is more he than she. And that, you know, and you find it. And you've got imagery all over scripture. You've got masculine imagery. God is a father. God is a king. You know, you've got, there's lots of it. You've got feminine imagery. God is a, is a nursing mother in Isaiah. God is a woman who loses a coin. Did, did you know that the word mercy that dominates the Hebrew scriptures comes from the same root as womb? So every time you read about mercy, you're talking about the womb love of God. And there is nothing so ferocious or so compassionate as the womb love of a mother and of God. It originates, it has to originate in the image of God that we are created in, which is male-female. Do you follow? So he, he lays this out, and the beauty of this story is, that my mother in 1946 saved a one-pound baby boy who decades later becomes the man who builds the bridge that she can walk across for her own son. 
Yeah. Um. Hmm. So, hmm. I told you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, my mom loves the shack. Doesn't understand it. <laughs> but Harold loves it. No, she does. She gets it, she gets it a lot now. And once she got through past Papa, she was like, all right. In fact, she wrote me this little letter um, a few years after she read the book. And uh, it's the first time I've ever gotten anything like this from my mom. And she said, I want you to know that it was reading The Shack that finally convinced me that God loved me. And you've got a missionary woman who was raised in the church all her whole life. And I got to write something that told my mom, you know what? You are loved relentlessly, without restriction, not through any performance, because you matter and you're worth loving. You have always been worth loving. Yeah. Paul, thank you. Oh, man. Come on. Um, when, when, um, when I read the book, uh, I, I had the, and I know everybody has different reactions, but I, I remember reading and, uh, this concept of God, it drew me in. And I think people have had that reaction too. It yeah. just literally sucked them in because I thought, oh man, there is a muffin making, I mean, just, you know what I mean? Like Careful, that brother. image of God just sucked me in and I was hooked from the instant. But yeah. that was personal to you. Oh, man. I mean, you, there was so a reason personal. you chose an African-American. Yeah, Renee Greenwich, in part. Uh, a, I know these women. You know, I grew up in a black culture, and uh, brown culture, and, uh, and I, was, I was six when I was sent to boarding school and it was the first time that I came to a conscious understanding that I was white, which was a huge disappointment. And uh, <laughs> I'm still a little pissed about it, just so you know. So, and uh, so, but, but I needed Papa to come through that door, and Renee is like that. And she, when she was, she passed a f- few years ago, and uh, she, she loved that I built the persona partly off of her. And one day I'm at her care facility and visiting her. It was like walking into uh, the holy place every, every time you go in there, holy of holies. And um, she says, Paul, she says, how come you and I were always friends? I said, well, that's easy. We were the only two black people in that white church. <laughs> she goes like, you're right, you're right, you're right. But, uh, you know, so much of the, the, the shack is about shame and about the place we get stuck. And, um, and I... My whole world was a broken place. And, and it took me 50 years to deal with some of that. And I had a very difficult relationship with my dad. And that's because he, he didn't have a chip for being a dad. And his, his dad had busted that before I ever showed up. Mm-hmm. And, but it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. And, uh, and I, needed, I needed someone to come busting through that door and wrap me up spin me around and say it is so good to see you face to face you have no idea how much I love you Mm. and without any any shadow of turning to use a great phrase in a hymn Mm. there is no shadow of turning all the shadows that have been created by turning come from us but in God there is no shadow of turning 
and uh, there is no shadow of turning with thee is, is the line in the hymn and um, and so it was very personal and um, I'm so so grateful that that has you know a lot of us were hurt by men because men do most of the hurting on the planet they do that's why Jesus comes as a male because he's got to go to where the deepest damage is do you understand that mm. scripture's deep thought in the book oh scripture says that's- Eight times in the New Testament, through one man, sin entered the world. It wasn't through her. It was through him. And that's because you have all this set of good things, because only God is good, right? So you run into good, 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 very good, and suddenly you hit a not good, and you know that doesn't originate in God. That not good is that Adam was in his separation or his turning, or his, it says he's alone. But it's not talking about, he's never been alone. Aloneness doesn't exist in God. God's never been alone. Right? So it's not part of the image of God in us. Any sense of aloneness is part of the darkness we brought to the table. And that's the beauty of a God who is in this with us because we're created in Christ. He dwells within us. The Holy Spirit's been poured out on us. These are all New Testament scriptures. And the, the truth of it is, is that's who we are, but we don't know it. Hmm. And we're lost in all these things. And God climbed into this with us without our vote and submitted to us. God in the hands of angry sinners and transformed our torture device into a monument of grace that is so precious we'll wear it on our rings. Mm. How cool is that? That means there's nothing that I can bring to the table that God has not climbed in with me and with me co-create something that is living in the middle of that. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Come on. We want you to know, and now today's a little unique, so we're, we're going to continue this conversation um, those of you that can stay, we're, we're, we're thrilled that you can. If you're leaving, we want you to know that you're loved and that God is love. I think that's the message that Paul and myself want to convey to everybody. God is love and you are loved. And, and, and let me add one thing to that. That love is a furious fire. I am, I am not opposed to the, the judgment and the fury of God. In fact, I count on it. Uh, George MacDonald wrote, uh, he's the one that led Lewis into relationship with Jesus and said, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to him with your arms wide open and you will say, please come on and judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. Mm. And so that fury is not against me, it is for me. And that's the mistake that we've made. This is not about just a God who is going like, oh, I wish they'd get their act together. No. God is absolutely opposed in the same way that I am opposed to anything that hurts my child or my grandchild. You give me the power to be a flaming fire and I would destroy every lie that attempts to twist them out of the freedom that is theirs in Jesus. Do you understand? So that love is a furious fire. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.